We're almost there, everybody. We're almost to the bar. Obviously, some of us have gotten there before this started. I would say welcome to uh, SF Music Tech, but you've probably been here for a while and heard that a couple times. This panel is about live and online, and was kind of thinking that, although you've probably all learned a lot today, that it might be good to recap some of the themes that we've been hearing all day. And we have an amazing panel up here that is pretty diverse, and I think we can run through some of the things we've been hearing and uh, get some feedback from you out there and, and also what these guys think up here. So I'm going to let everybody do a quick self-introduction and, uh, and then start this off. So Matt. Matt Tomaszewicz. I run a mobile ticketing platform called uh, Thrill Call with uh, offers in three cities now and expanding to five at the end of the year. I'm Scott Richardson. I am uh, the CEO and founder of a company called Ticket Mob. We are a social white label ticketing platform for venues, artists, promoters. Hi, I'm Rick Farman. I'm one of the co-founders of Superfly Presents. Um, we are producers of uh, various festivals, including Bonnaroo Music Festival, as well as uh, Outside Lands uh, Music and Arts Festival here in San Francisco. And we also have the Superfly Marketing Group, which is a uh, essentially an agency that helps brands market within the entertainment space, uh, primarily uh, experiential marketing uh, using events. And I think that's a, just a great place to start because I think we talk a lot about social and online and you know digital and these things that we, we do kind of in the cloud. But for me, your festivals really represent experience more than, than anything. And I think that's our end goal with all the different ticketing platforms that we have, all of the apps that kind of fit in the middle. It's at the end of the day, there has to be something offline, has to be an experience. Is that something that you guys started off in the very beginning as this is this is going to make us different than every other festival? Because it seems like there is a lot of offline experience to what you guys are doing. Yeah, I think we've always sort of looked at our brands as, um, to a certain degree, as media brands um, because um, we're, we're curating uh, entertainment for people. We're putting together a program, essentially, of things that we feel are, uh, you know, people are going to be interested in experiencing. Um, and uh, we, we know that as we do that, um, we're reaching not just the people that are uh, coming to the actual festivals. When we first started our business uh, in 1997, um, we were producing shows in New Orleans during Mardi Gras and Jazz Fest. And um, we made a, a decision to um, take out advertising in weeklies uh, all over the country. and. It wasn't necessarily to sell tickets to do that, but we knew people from all over the country were coming to New Orleans to come to these shows. And so we, we wanted to have sort of the affiliation with th that kind of event and our name spread um, nationally. Um, so it's really no different than when what we do uh, now, which is we look at each one of our events and we think about, okay, what, what extensions can there be? What media products can there be? What what um, ways can we touch people other than the, the amount of people that can physically come to the event? So you, you take something like Bonnaroo where we have 80,000 people that come to the actual festival. But we know that um, you know, when we announce our lineup and the weekend of the festival, we're, we're actually reaching millions and millions of people. So um, you know, that, that's, that's a big focus of our business is how to connect those two things. And, and that kind of brings you up a little bit, Scott, there is in the, in the ticketing world is 
is ticketing just about buying a ticket? Is it just an e-commerce platform, or is it ticketing today something much bigger? It's just buying a ticket. That's it. Yes. Okay. Moving um, on. Moving on. <clears throat> no, we we actually we kind of consider ourselves the first experience of a concert goer. You know, generally that is the start of it. Is you actually go to buy your ticket. Um, and so there's kind of a, a few things we we believe in. A, the the moment you buy your ticket needs to be branded by whoever the event organizer is. It shouldn't be on a ticketing company website. So all of our, all of our clients have their own sites that they can sell directly from. Um, number two, we think social is a huge component you have to start with. I mean, events are, are, are largely fun because of the people who are around us and with us. So you have to do things to incentivize um, your buyers to actually share it with their friends and to create a community around the event starting right away. So we tie in a number of things like we have you know, social rewards where the event organizer can um, create a discount for you for sharing on, you know, with your friends. Or for some of our nightclub clients, we'll say, um, we do a lot of ticketing for a lot of the nightclubs in the country. And um, if I'm going to buy a table, I'm going to buy a bottle service, I can actually put down $200 and send it to 10 friends who can all then put down $200. And we can do Facebook commenting on this unique page, you know, as we split the table, we have 24 hours to do it. So we do a lot of things to build both, you know, community and, and invitations and social around it. Um, and then we give the event organizer a lot of ways to continually interact with um, with the ticket buyer all leading up to the event because we feel like it shouldn't just be you buy your ticket and then you're ignored for the three weeks leading up to the event. There should be constant interaction between there. And Matt, you're kind of, to me, you seem like you're disrupting this space a little bit and I, in, in a positive way because it seems like you fit in between um, Rick and Scott and I don't know if you're taking from them or you're you're helping them I, and i mean that in a in yeah, a positive uh, way because i think you fit in a very interesting space no, it's, a, it's a good question it's funny i actually say all the time that you can't actually be disruptive in the ticketing space because you know one person is letting somebody into the building and either they have the ticket or they don't um, you know whereas scott's company is a little bit more vertical and that they're focusing their product on either a genre or a club or whatever we just go across horizontally specifically in the mobile space um, we create exclusive offers, and there's a limited availability to those tickets. So, you know, if you download our app, you have a chance of getting that ticket on a daily basis. That creates some excitement. It's almost like having an on-sale every day. Um, and then the great part about it is there's limited availability. So you're actually using the ticket to remarket the show, and we're usually adding a value add on our side. So that's where we're complementary in that, you know, we've had many cases where people will sell out of... 10 tickets of an exclusive offer on a daily basis, and then people will go downstream and buy well, from the what's house. What's an example of an offer? Uh, we have everything from VIP. I'll tell you a huge one that's, that's very low effort for a venue is skip the line. You obviously can't offer that to the house, right? Because then there would be no line, or there'd be just a line, right? right. So, <laughs> so what we do is we have, you know, 20 tickets or something and you know those always get sell, sold in pairs because of obviously you know it's great if you're bringing a date to skip the line mm -hmm. right so that, that's a good example of it of an easy value add and it's just another reason to market a show mm -hmm. right and then it can people can go downstream and buy the ticket again if that availability is not there do you have that relationships directly with the band sometimes <laughs> It's a, it's a difficult world. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, we, we started out focusing on venues and actually on primary ticketers. Our, our business was actually a listing service, um, and Live Nation was our first client, actually. And we, we, we sent them all of our data. And so then from that, we just started focusing on, on the venues and the primary ticketers to sell more tickets. But I, I would say that I wish there was a cookie-cutter, one-set example. There isn't. It's a discussion and an account management business for us. 
Rick, are, are you, do you guys do any bundling? Is there packages there? Um, or is it pretty much you get the ticket and you get the whole experience? Or have you found, found ways to, I don't know if it's an upsell, but... Uh, we, we do a lot of upsells. You do? Um, you know, you, you kind of don't want to force people to buy something they don't want, but you want to give them value if they want to buy a variety of things from you. That, that's basically been our philosophy. And there's a there seems to be a lot of data, and I think that that's something you know we we were at a at a panel last week. It, it got brought up a lot is that there's a ton of data that's sitting there from the data that Rick might have of what time people come into the gate, how much they they buy when they're there. Scott, you kind of know when people are buying those tickets and how they're buying that, and then you're also kind of seeing if they're buying soon, you know, before up front or kind of on the end. Can we talk about how we can use data to, one, help the maybe the promoter, and then also how, how can we use it to help the fan have a better experience? I don't know if, uh, I'll, I'll start. Yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right, which is that we're kind of living in a world where it's not the one-size-fits-all fan anymore, which gives opportunities to the event organizers, and it gives opportunities to the fans. You know, there's some fans who are willing to pay more to not wait in line, to meet the artist, to get a signed piece of merchandise or have a private bathroom. I mean, I've seen people bundle all sorts of, you know, interesting experiences. And then there's the fan that really just wants the discount and is willing to wait till the last minute and hope to get in or just wants the cheapest seat in the house and just wants to be part of it. And you can really use data then to drive those marketing decisions around who you're trying to reach and when. Some of the things we encourage our, our clients to do is to pay attention to if people are early buyers or late buyers. You know, my wife's a planner. If you know, if you don't get her three months in advance, she is not going to the event. I'm spontaneous. You know, I don't know what I'm doing until the day before. We're, we're breaking up. <laughs> but you know, but the, the, the reality is that. Sorry to admit that on this panel. But I mean, that's a really key driver around my purchasing. I'm not going to buy something three months in advance, and she wants to. So you need to target those people at different times. And then by looking at the levels they buy at, are they the person who's buying the highest level of experience because they want all access and they're willing to pay for it because they have the disposable income? Or do they just want to participate and get in somehow? And if you target people with the wrong offers, they're going to feel like it's not the right event for them. So using data to intelligently target is incredibly and increasingly important. Yeah, I, I would just say that, you know, in terms of what we've seen on our side, we, we measure daily in terms of what notifications we put out through your mobile phone as well as what emails you get on our behalf. And then we measure that downstream all the way to the transaction. And we, you know, there's some things that we can do on the product or UI side to improve things. I'll, I'll give you one that I talked about in another panel. If you use a picture in your app or on your website of an artist, use a headshot instead of a band shot from far away because more people will look at your offer. That's a fact. They've proven that a number of times. So we look at, we look at that data and we just continually try to optimize that experience. And then I think more important for the venues and the promoters is who's coming down and who's purchasing and who's not, right? So a lot of you have uh, either Facebook reg uh, registrations or your own registrations. You can take a look at who went to what area of the site, and then you can take a look at transactions and see what those profiles are. That's you know, we, we have a lot of people that request that data from us. And how, how are you using data? Are you, are you using... Um are you using any? Because I know I'll just talk about my. I, I also own the Roxy. I don't. I didn't give myself an intro, but um, we use a lot of data in our booking office, and and I know that you know obviously that top tier of bands. It's it's not an easy list, but 
that's something that everybody can kind of come up with. Are you using data to, to, to see which bands, whether it's social data or, or Polestar data? I mean, what, what, are the, what data is relevant for you still um, in, in your space? I think we take most things into account. Um, you know, we certainly uh, solicit a lot of fan feedback and information through surveys. We do an on-site, uh, what we call a census, where people, you know, uh, give us uh, information on a wide range of Actually, things. Actually, people walking around the festival yeah. taking in, that's, that's yeah. great. Yeah, um, and, um, you know, we we also are very engaged with all, all of our different social media channels to sort of, like, you know, look at what people are talking about and what, what, what bands are hot. And then, you know, at times, probably more so when we're in a negotiation, do we look at something like mm -hmm. Polestar or, or something like that? Um, you know, I think that the ticketing data is, is actually uh, really interesting, and, and we've developed a lot of, um, you know, digital m marketing campaigns uh, around some of that data. Um, you know, some of it's SEO, some of it's, um, you know, other types of targeted marketing. You know, we, uh, you know, we've at times, you know, experienced some really high bounce rates. Um, that were like people were getting all the way through to the ticketing page and then just you know leaving and in rates that were were a lot higher than they should be and some of it was because of just the design of our um, you know uh, of our site and our setup some of it was for some other technical reasons um, so we're, we're always you know trying to use that to our advantage yeah it, it and I, it's it's not always data that um, there's you've asked a question i mean even just whether they've kind of clicked through the app or how far they went into the ticketing process um that's that's really important stuff too as well right yeah well just the, the associative data i mean and i think the other thing that's important is how you visualize and use it right so we you know for one client we have we offer them word clouds for similar artists that came through and purchased and that's what she, she really likes to use right so it's you know it's how are you going to use the data so th you know think about how you you know, use data now, whether it's, you know, checking out Facebook fans or Twitter followers or wh however what it is. And then, you know, you should be looking downstream, obviously, for that stuff. Uh, I'm going to just talk a little bit about discounting tickets, but it, it has seemed like um, the ticketing industry or the the, the live music industry is leveled off, leveled off somewhat from where it was a few years ago where um, there was all kinds of discounting and it was very, uh, it might be when it's on the on sale there was a discount or the day before the show. Have we seen that that calm down a little bit, Scott? And, and, and what, what are your thoughts on, um, on discounting? What, what, what are different ways that, are there actions for, for like the super fan if, you know, is there a way to identify that super fan that maybe they're, they're driving the most amount of ticket sales to try to reward them. Is that some stuff that you're seeing? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's. I mean, there's there's a couple different pieces of that, but you're absolutely right. I mean, discounting has probably gone down a little bit. I think it was kind of the craze when Groupon and Living Social were sort of at their height. But I think we've, as an industry, kind of realized that you just can't continually give away your your product, you know, below face value, or in the end, it's going to be detrimental. And you'd rather take a few bad shows than, than create bad purchasing habits for your customers. 
But yeah, I think exactly what you said, which is that we're trying to figure out intelligent ways to do rewards and do discounting. So we've influencer tracking in our system. So you can actually give loyalty points or rewards for people who share and actually drive ticket sales. If somebody else sells, you know, five tickets, you know, prior to the show, you can give them a discount or we actually find access is an even better reward, giving them something additionally that, the, you know, other people aren't able to get um, just to turn your, your you know, buyers into marketers. It's, it's really powerful. And, you know, we sort of encourage that as opposed to discounting, but, but you can absolutely use it for discounting as well. I would just say, you know, we, we talk to the primary ticketers and, you know, if you talk to Ticketmaster, they're, in their words, Groupon's knocking it out of the park. I, I don't understand it, but because they've already reached the, you know, the emails there. If you talk to AEG, they have a standing email order not to discount tickets. And, and that's, that's the way it should be, you know, especially in my business where, you know, most of my tickets are during closeout. So, you know, if you're offering value ads two weeks before the show, you're really going to jip that person that came in early and, and bought a ticket. So, you know, we don't do it within our app. And we, we seem to get a lot of bad feedback whenever we start adding things to the ticket. I mean, one, it, it looks as if the show, I mean, you know, uh, how it used to look when you used to go to Groupon at the end of the day, uh, it, it was that that show wasn't selling. And I'm pretty much everybody knew that across the board. Um, but we did actually start doing some value add stuff. But I think that that's almost kind of gotten to a certain point as well. You know, front of the line access. How do, how do we, uh, how, how are you guys working with, or Scott, with, with bands? I mean, are you doing some where the band is saying, I know that there's bands now that come into the Roxy that don't want to go through our traditional ticketing. They either want to use a PayPal service or they want to use their own ticketing. Are, are you working with, whether it's in the comedy field or, or in, the, in the venue field, is that happening? Yeah, I mean, we, we have a lot of direct deals with artists. Um, you know, we'll sign full ticketing contracts with them and, and there's sort of kind of almost three business models for artists these days. The first is to actually physically rent the venue and just forgo having a promoter. Adam Carolla is a client of ours. He's been renting venues, doing full, you know, podcasts, you know, in front of 2,000 people, sells all the tickets himself, you know, upsells his book and his DVD. So he's had great success with that. That's an example. Second model is um, doing VIP packages. And that's where you're, you know, you're bundling with a meet and greet or a signed piece of merchandise. And even at Ticketmaster venues, artists are allowed to carve out 8% of their tickets um, and sell directly to their fans. Um, and there's a few restrictions to that, but um, artists are starting to do that more and more. And then the last is artist pre-sales where they can actually put tickets on sale before the general public. Um, and you know, and they have a, a short window where they can um, sell to a fan club directly. So we kind of offer all three to artists. We do all three, and, and they're all being used more today than they were five years ago. It's still, I think, slow adoption, and the problem is most artists just don't have the infrastructure. The management doesn't want to take it on. The agent doesn't want to take it on. The artist doesn't want to do it. Um, so it's just finding the, the person who's committed to doing it, and you're not going to always see an ROI on that first tour. It's it's These people have to start looking at is the lifetime value of their fans um, in order to really see the value in it. It needs to be something where I'm creating a better interaction with my fan. I'm offering them more. For being in my fan club, you get early access to tickets. I'm going to capture your email address, and I'm going to talk to you throughout the year. And that's where you see the ROI on it. It's not going to be because you're going to make you know an extra million dollars this year by doing artist tickets. Rick, are you are you going back to your your 
the people that buy tickets and are they are they getting like a special notice or you're just going out um, and not kind of, cuz I'm sure you have people that have gone every year and kind of our loyal fans. Do yeah. you do anything for them or they just have, we don't have any specific affinity program right now like that. I mean we we do um, have tiered ticketing so people who buy early on get a benefit of doing so and frequently those are the people that are you know the committed veterans that come back every year so we feel like that kind of covers that this is a kind of a, a big question but can you give me a, a state of, of where festivals are today because I, I feel like we've watched them explode in front of our eyes and then I just saw a couple festivals have kind of a tough summer where they had put a lot out there I'm not uh, some had a lot of success but it seems like the festival is the kind of calming down a little bit and some people are rising to the top or you still think there's there's growth for more festivals out there I, I think it's a natural evolution I mean when we first started doing festivals and were successful with them um, there was a lot of people that jumped in then as well I mean if you remember 2008 there was uh, five festivals that launched nationally um, and only one of them still exists, and that's Outside Lands. So the one in New York, uh, All Points West failed, the one in Denver failed, uh, the one in, in uh, Michigan, and then um, you know, the one in, uh, in, in Vancouver. So this is nothing new. This is what's going to happen when people create a successful model. Other people are going to try and come and either, you know, sort of replicate it or find their own path with it and it's like any business the people who are going to be creative and innovative uh, and pay attention to the details and treat their customers right those are the ones that are going to be successful um, the ones that you know don't have good fundamentals or uh, not a solid um, strategy they're they're gonna they're you know gonna get hurt and and not be sustainable um, so I think, you know, when you look at it, it's, it's uh, really 10 plus years, you know, coming, getting close to 15 of sort of this new world of festivals in America. And when you look at Europe, they've been going on for 40, 50 years. So I yeah. think that when, you know, you compare where we're at now, it's very healthy and it's going to continue to grow. Um, and, you know, you're going to see successes and failures along the way. And, and streaming, that's something that seems to be one of the themes today um, at a bunch of the panels. For you, where does, it, is, is that a brand? Is that about the brand, the stream, or is it eventually a revenue source? It's both. Um, I think what's really interesting is um, over the last, I'd say, year, um, maybe a little bit into last year, um, you know, it, it sort of hit a point of, um, I don't know what the right word is, a critical mass, but it, it's finally come to fruition, you know. I remember, I don't know, six, seven, eight years ago, people always talked about webcasts, and all these people ran out and tried to wire up all these clubs and do all this stuff, and then it kind of fizzled because the product wasn't really there. There wasn't the bandwidth to, to do it. Um, the, the quality was... was cheap and not good and so you know people thought oh webcasting isn't going to work now that you know many more people's televisions are connected to the internet 
you're starting to see, um, you know, uh, a lot of opportunity um, in that space. Our numbers, uh, and we, we've sort of been a leader in webcasting. We did the first YouTube festival webcast ever. We were one of the first really ever to, to do a large-scale festival webcast um, many years ago with, with AT&T and the, their Blue Room product. Um, and those were good numbers, but over the last couple years, and I, I just know from my personal um, network of friends and things, people are like, you know, they're having their couch festival experiences where they're like sitting around at home because they can't go and they're watching it together. And, you know, I think it speaks to, again, these kind of events that are um, iconic, that people really have a passion for, they're, they're reaching way, way more people than can actually come to the physical event. Um, and I, I think you're just going to see that grow and grow. And I think as you see uh, more interesting social integration, I'm personally a big believer that video uh, conferencing and, and video chatting is going to really take that all to the next level where you're going to be able to you know, sit at home um, and literally watch the festival with other friends that are not there with you or, uh, you know, I was watching the Yankee game last night and I have like a chat group with a bunch of my friends uh, and my brother and I'm just sitting there saying, I know in like three or four years, we're all, all of our videos are going to be up on up on the screen and when somebody big happens, we're all going to be looking at each other and excited about that. You're, you're going to see the same thing uh, in, in the festival space and I think people that are looking to, um, you know, technology to sort of further that experience, I, I personally believe that that is going to be really fruitful ground. Um, so I think these things really become uh, an extension of the overall brand of what you are. A festival has a really interesting uh, opportunity to reach lots of different people with lots of different styles of things and, and experiences, and you know I think that's going to transfer right into the home. Did you ever did you ever worry that at some point that the ticket sales would go down because somebody was going to sit at home, or it was almost always? Going to be mean more people the next year. I think it's like saying, "Do you want to go to the Super Bowl or do you want to watch it at home?" Right. I mean, if I had a choice, I'd go to the Super Bowl. Right. Of course. You know, I'd go to Yankee Stadium tomorrow night. But you know, that's you know that's not an option for me, so I'm going to do it at home. I I think actually it's the exact opposite. I think that it helps drive people to become more and more interested in actually attending the events. And back to just one other point when you look at the festival landscape and you say, well, are all these, you know, festivals that are coming up, do they hurt each other? I'm actually a big believer that the exact opposite is true. There, there may be a few things that are, you know, like, hey, we had a festival in our vicinity this year that we think maybe took a few thousand tickets from us. Yeah, so be it. But at the end of the day, I really believe, um, you know, a 19-year-old kid who goes to Coachella and has the time of his life is more apt to be like, Let's go to Bonnaroo. Kid who has an amazing time at Lollapalooza, more apt to you know come to outside lands. So I think in many ways, um, you know, it's just feeding on itself. It's it, now there's festival culture. There's like totally. people can spend their summer, you know, going to three or four different festivals. I, I think we're just starting here. I, I think it's really um, you know on the upswing, and that, that's just going to continue to multiply. It is a little, just being a small venue, and especially in L.A. where we have a ton of festivals, it does actually 
it is pretty tough on the the small venue because uh, you have Coachella, for example, that is doing a a 90 or a 60 day on, um, radius clause on the front and on the back, and that includes all of Los Angeles. And luckily, there's a relationship there with Golden Voice and the Roxy. But I can tell you that some of the other venues have have been, you know, the venue has been hurt because it's we're just not getting the bands. I mean, we're going through a period that we know every single April um, that we gotta we gotta look we gotta look elsewhere to book different kinds of talent because there is this talent suck that's happening. Well, I think that's fair, and you know, at the end of the day, the market is what the market is. Yeah. But um, I think there's another side to that, which is you look what happens in this town during Coachella. It's like bonanza I yeah. mean every venue is packed because every agent is trying to route around it especially now with the two weekends and so I would say you know a similar thing I felt I, fe- I feel it uh, around out- outside uh, outside lands. land so I think I think there's it, a give, give and take there I agree I, I think yeah. there's other venues out there small venues that don't agree but I and I, I think the more music that we have in Southern California obviously I'm Southern California I think it's better for people going out in general where where do you guys live in that that streaming space is there is there room for for ticketing is there room for for thrill call uh, I don't see it quite as much um, we haven't we haven't tried it much just because it's difficult technically to do it on a daily daily uh, daily basis but you know coming back to your uh, festival point we did a whole Focella series here in San Francisco during that week, and we got a number of venues to participate, and that's kind of, you know, not the streaming answer, but that's right. that's what the power of our, our app is, because you could get a subscription, and the venues were all, were all for, for it, because we were tra- charging a premium, and they could have got, you know, they could have went to five shows you know, during the week, and they probably only went to three or four, so. And yeah, I mean, we actually, we share a mutual client, um, iRock, which you, you have at Adler integrated, but we're actually doing ticketing for their, they're doing streaming shows and they're going to charge for some of the bigger shows and we're providing the ticketing for it. So yeah, we think that's actually another place you can actually have a physical ticket and, you know, sort of some of the excitement that you can buy it ahead of time. You can share it with your friends. You can invite them, get rewards for inviting a couple friends. Um, and keep it as a keepsake that you saw that you know the live streaming Bonnaroo show or you know whatever it is. So um, I, I think it's a it's a huge space for growth. Let's talk a, a little bit about mobile. I think that's something that's that's come up a bunch today as well. Um, obviously, you're a mobile mobile app. I, I, I was thinking, um, Rick, is it, how is there a, a do you have mobile app for for your festivals and do you see because um, we had a map, uh, an, a, ma- uh, oval, a mobile app for the Roxy, and I just I think at that size venue when you're doing 500 people, there you you almost have to have some type of critical mass for the app to kind of turn over and actually feel like you want to use it. Are you guys using something? Or? Yeah, I mean, very valuable for us. I mean, on the most basic level, it's just replacing the program. You know, that you would get your map, all the description of the bands, um, you know, the next sort of uh, kind of, you know, benefit up from that is, um, you know, that you can make your schedule at home and then it just shows up on your phone. So that's kind of convenient. You can share your schedule for all of our festivals with, you know, various people that are coming. Um, Another step up from that will be actually... Uh, rating different things while you're there and I think where things get really interesting is when you can actually track your experience and that that's starting to get implemented where um, you know like we did a program it wasn't through a mobile app but it was through RFID 
this year at Bonnaroo where you could check in at each stage that you went to. Yeah. And when you got home, you got a Spotify playlist with the exact songs that were played yeah. uh, you know, at that show. It weren't the it wasn't the live performance, but it was the recorded tracks of whatever you know that set list that that band played. More and more, you're going to see those kind of sort of integrations where um, you know again a connect the, this mobile experience is going to allow the user there to connect uh, you know back to what they're doing at home and be able to spread the word. Now it gets really interesting when it goes the other way and where this is getting interesting and it's probably the other very fertile ground for development uh, in the tech space is uh, around mobile payments. Um, because once you start to get into a situation where um, you can actually start to purchase certain goods with your phone, which we all know, anybody who follows that space knows is right around the corner. Um, you, you're not going to have a wallet anymore. You're, everything's going to happen through your phone uh, or another device. Um, you, you start to get into this area where um, you, first off, you get a data set like I'm talking about. So if I go to a food festival, for instance, which is a, another area we're, we're heavily investing in right now, and I try 20 different things, and I've paid for them with my phone, or you go to Bonnaroo or outside lands, wine lands, where we have, you know, serve 120 different wines, you can't remember which ones you tried. But if you paid for it with your phone, and you get home and you say, oh, these are the wines I tried, and I really liked that one because I made a note on my app while I bought it, we're going to try and sell you a case of that wine right then and there. Great. So all of a sudden you start to get into a whole commerce uh, dynamic that these events can help to drive. Now the other side to that, what I said before in terms of it going the other way from people being at home being able to participate, now all of a sudden you're going to be able to enable things where your buddies at Bonnaroo and you couldn't go this year and you're going to buy them a beer. Yeah. And it's going to show up on his phone that says, hey, Nick just bought me a beer at Bonnaroo. Go have fun, bud. And you're going to walk up to the beer stand and you're going to redeem it right there. So all sorts of stuff like that are going to go back and forth um, between the people that are at the event, people that are at home, and, and mobile just makes it all happen. Are you, um, Scott, are you looking at ways to... It, it seems like we do all this work um, before the show. The show happens, and then it goes away. So kind of what Rick was saying, this this bringing it back home or getting that, is there anything in the ticketing space that, that's kind of on the horizon that's going to kind of extend the show a little bit? Um, you know, I know we were talking about iRock. Um, iRock does something where it's it's all for streaming shows, but you end up getting a page. It's almost like your box of uh, ticket stubs, and I and you know we're seeing a lot of people posting their ticket stubs. It's really kind of a uh, it's like a badge that that I I was there. I was part of that experience. Um, is there, is there a place for that in, in ticketing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you know badges are are a perfect example of what it is. Is that you know we, we're talking to you know, a lot of places we're doing paperless ticketing for, so you still want some kind of keepsake. And then creating that as a, as a badge of honor in your, like, social profile. So if you're on Facebook, being able to have, you know, the 30 shows you've been to and, you know, listed as sort of badges of honor. So there's definitely some consumer stuff around that. And then just in terms of the event organizers, I mean, we provide them all sorts of data to reconnect with these people around their preferences, but it has to be a year-round relationship, whether you're one, one day, your festival, you're a small venue that has shows 365 days. You know, I know like with you guys, you guys do a great 
newsletter at the Roxy that has become almost like a, a lifestyle newsletter where people open up for beta invites and you know food news and restaurant openings and all sorts of things and um, that's really you know the new way of being is that you have to have a relationship with your customer you just can't come knocking like a salesman when you want to sell them something um, you have to communicate with them and again going back to the data and their preferences and how they want to be communicated with and some people it's email some people it's Twitter some people it's text messages um, and you kind of have to use any channel that they prefer to, to constantly reach them. And one of the best ways is content. You know, and, and Rick talked about some of them. I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, playlists from shows you know that they like. It's pictures that, you know, that maybe either their friends took or even just was, you know, taken at the event that they were at. So I think it's constantly feeding them with, with content and ways to interact with the brand year-round. I, I, I totally agree with that. Did you have something to say on that? Well, you know, that's that's not our focus. <laughs> you know, our focus is on, on selling tickets for people. So, you know, when it comes to managing the, the life cycle, the user, we leave that up to the venue or the promoter. We sure will help them and we'll send people notifications within our within our app or an email afterward. But, you know, th th it's a little bit less our business. You know, uh, you talked about, uh, you know, Live Nation has 40% of their traffic now that's mobile. I think Ticketfly is 20 to 25%. Ticketfly, I think, did away with their, you know, apps on a per venue, per promoter basis. That's exactly, essentially, what our value is. Uh, well, maybe, so I, 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 I'm sorry, I, that, I'd heard that from somebody there. Uh, but are you doing anything? Though? I mean, for and, and to Scott's point, I mean, for the Roxy, it's been so much more than just here's your ticket on sale. It's been here's a an amazing um, street artist that we love. Here's a here's a new restaurant down the street. Here's a uh, technology company that we're working with. So we've actually learned that it's not. Um, we try to sell uh, the least that we can and actually make it more about that you're part of this Roxy community, that we're going to be giving you all kinds of things. At the end of the day, it's going to come back to music, but we, we want to be part of your everyday life so that when that show does happen, you know, there, there's 30 shows going on. I think there's 38 uh, average uh, shows going on at any given night in Los Angeles. So there's a ton of competition out there. So we feel like that relationship for us is is super key. So and I think that revolves a, a lot around content, um, the the things that we kind of represent represent ourselves with. Um, I I wanted to uh, reach out. I I, I have uh, my friend Xavier is here and he. Uh, um, is a one of the premier exec, executors for social, and I just you've been here all day. I was just wanted to reach out and see if there were some points that we weren't hitting on that you might want to throw out. Yeah, so just the the idea of we have all this data, um, and I, I see it too. It comes over in an Excel sheet, and sometimes it's hard for me to pick out you know what to do with that. Um, how, how, how is that getting better? Displaying. Oh data? yeah, I mean, we, I mean, we provide full commerce analytics, so on the back end, they can track every single ticket purchase and where it came from, be it social, be it email, be it direct traffic to the website and where the link was. But yeah, I mean, more than ever, we need to know exactly what you know are driving sales. And a lot of times, you know, in this world, you put content out there and you really have no idea, you know, if it's effective or not. Um, and so, you, you know, we're driving analytics. And I think the next level of it that we need to get to is um, recommendations. What are the, the times that work? And one of the interesting things is, you know, with our clients, we're allowed to use anonymous aggregate data, um, you know, as a whole. And we think that that's a really powerful thing where we can educate people who <clears throat> maybe, you know, have a small venue or running a festival, 
you know, what are the times of day that are most effective to post certain types of content and what types of content are people most interacting with and what type of content is leading to the most ticket sales. Um, and, you know, we're not going to ever give away some specific data, but as a whole, do pictures drive sales or do links to a band's video sell tickets? And, you know, we can start sharing some of that data to help drive decisions. Yeah, like, for example, do, you know, a lot of our bands, sometimes they feel like they can't afford not to take out Facebook ads and Google AdWords to try and sell, like, your tickets. And, like, or, or, we don't know if those clicks and links go through to Live Nation. Like, I don't know. Yeah, I generated this many clicks, but Live Nation isn't going to tell me that. Like, I, Live Nation isn't going to show me my conversion rate. You know, that you're going to try to ask them, and they're going to be totally confused, like, as to as to what you're asking sometimes, you know. I mean, we share the data. Our clients can log in and look at it on an individual basis. So if you're, like, doing social for a client, they can look up, and they can provide you with all that data, and they can provide you exactly how many sales the Facebook campaign had, and even A-B test different ads as well. Are, are we ever, and this is, uh, I don't know if I know the answer or I'm scared of the answer, but are we ever going to get a play to as, as promoters of events that there's some more shared um, data? Because I think, you know, when we book, um, Rick, festivals, um, although we have some numbers out there, it, it's such an unfair playing, game, uh, playing field where um, how much we pay for the artists. And it seems like, there's so much data there, but it's also, it's not open to us. And I mean, it's scary when the day that it is because we'll find some other way to, to, to one-up each other or you know try to get that banned. But it seems like if we had, if Polestar is not consistent, you know, that if you, there's nothing to hold you accountable for the numbers that you, you can report really whatever you want to Polestar. So uh, is there, I, I, what I noticed this season is that a lot of the prices had gone up um, for a lot of the talent out there. It seemed like during the recession, everyone kind of came down, the the prices were somewhat stable, and it just seems like they just shot up in this last year. Do you think we'll ever have access to um, some type of group data that we can make better decisions? Because I think we're just looking at Polestar, and we're going off of our gut, and we're looking at some social numbers, but we don't really have a ton of data. I don't know. I, my gut feel is there's probably more room for collaboration on the uh, more of the operational side of things than there is on the programming and talent side of things. I, I think the, you know, the nature of it is competitive and um, to a certain degree uh, both from the artist side and from the promoter side a bit proprietary. So, um, But the agent seems to have access to all those tools, you know, they seem to, obviously they know what... Yeah, I mean, look, we, you know, I think in a formal way, my guess is probably not. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, that's why some of the theory behind things like Live Nation and AEG is, you know, right. they all can share their information. Um, what we do as independent guys is, you know, have lots of friends that we call. Right. So, I mean, absolutely, like when we go to Book Bonnaroo, do we ask... Um, well, I call up another planet and say, hey, what, what did you guys pay for this? Or what's going on with that? You know, what do you think this is worth on our festival? Uh, you know, and, and, and vice versa. So it, it, it's kind of, you know, just, I think, more traditional networking. I, I would be surprised if you ever had sort of, uh, you know, a place where everybody's going to commit to reporting the, that data and that data is going to become um, used now. 
through ticketing and and some of the sort of some of the back end of that you know maybe some ticketing has the opportunity to produ produce a data set that maybe can be slightly um, non-specific yeah that's provide, what and I think that's what I'm, guidance that's what but, I'm thinking about. yeah potentially do, do you guys provide any Matt do you guys are you giving data to your partners yeah we, we, uh, you know we run either contests or exclusive offers we share all the data with them and you know that's told to the customer when they come through as well and like i said it's whatever they demand so we try to bundle whatever you know there's uh, services like rap leaf out there as well as facebook we try to bundle all that information together to give them a good profile scott are you uh well i'll, I'll just chime in real quick that we wholeheartedly believe that that would be an amazing future for everyone but it's very political and you know everyone has to move very cautiously with it so i mean i'm i'm Long-term optimistic, short-term very pessimistic on it. Damn. Sorry. <laughs> but I will, I'll add one other thing, which is there's a whole other data set, which is how many fans does somebody have locally? What's their, what's their reach locally? What you know, is the affinity around them that I think you can do that, would, that will be able to drive some decisions that won't be sales data? Yeah, question. I have a question for the panel and for Rick particularly. Um, my name is Howard Saffer, and I produce a festival called the Harmony Fest for the last 33 years here in the Bay Area. And about seven or eight mid-sized festivals, between five and 25,000, came together and created a sort of a cooperative about three years ago. And the issue where it broke down on was sharing pricing on talent, which I thought was the reason to bring the festival. Everybody wanted to share staging, and everybody wanted, especially wanted to share sponsorship opportunities. But if you're going to compete with Live Nation, which is now my partner, and you want to compete with AEG, you really have to be able to share that information because the agents do have all the cards. They're talking to each other about how much they can get, especially since we pay twice as much for our gigs as the, as the non-festival dates. So I think the future has to have some collaborative model. And how do you get your place where you could share without feeling like you're giving your trade secrets away because it's a competitive market? And number two is, the experience you get at Bonnaroo or you get at Harmony, which is really about people coming together and forming community for three or four days, how do we translate that into the online space? You know, my brother, when I was in Hawaii, we talk every day during the Steeler game the same way you're talking, and we had that sense of community, but how do we do that realistically in the music space, and is it Skype-type opportunities, or how do you think that would come down? Great questions. Rick, do you uh, want to? Well, I, you know, again, I don't, I don't really know the answer to the first part. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I think it's uh, difficult, but um, I think it actually part of the answer to the problem is your second question, which is how do you get people to come to the festival just to come to the festival and the talent be secondary? I mean, uh, I don't know, Glastonbury just sold 150,000 tickets with no advertising. There are some festivals here that have been able uh, to get to that space. Um, you look at, um, you know, uh, one of the biggest um, uh, EMD promoters, uh, Insomniac, they're, you know, they're trying to slash their talent costs. They're, they're not going to pay for the big DJs is what they're saying because they believe that their events unto their own can sell. And I think Harmony is like that as well, where are people coming just for that one act? So I think it's, it's about, part of it's about just being judicious with your budget and knowing when to say no, and at the same time, um, growing your community. And I think, um, obviously, you know, the, you know, all the traditional, now traditional stuff that's out there, social um, experiences are, are big. 
Um, and, and beyond that, it's, uh, you know, sort of about being creative uh, about what really is a social experience at an event. Um, you know, I went to Burning Man for the first time two years ago, and uh, it blew my mind um, it completely. Yes, because of, like, all the cool stuff that's out there, but, but more so just because of how the community behaves and how it's so a part of the event. Uh, we did something this year at the festival. Um, uh, many of you guys have probably seen this uh, sort of bucket list thing, you know, where, you know, you put up uh, things I want to do before I die and you leave a blank. And within like minutes, it was, you know, completely covered with people with all sorts of cool ideas. So can you move some of those types of experiences online for, for your brand? Can you create the same type of dynamic where people are truly looking to either interact with one another or create together? Those are certainly the kind of things that we're spending energy looking at. And, you know, I, I think that's part of the answer. Yeah. And I, I would just uh, talk about community. That's something that we've worked a lot on, on the Sunset Strip. And part of the reason why I'm even here is because of, uh, what we've done on the strip in terms of social and being real time and keeping that conversation going. Um, if someone puts up a picture, we're taking that and trying to spread it across our networks and start a different conversation maybe on Facebook on that same piece of content that someone put out on Twitter or Instagram. So really trying to connect those networks, but doing it in a way that's real time. Because I think if you try to go the next day or the day after, I think that feeling, you can't you can't be a part of it if, it, if, you're, if you're past it. So. You know what? That was something. The strip in general, but but also the Roxy. Um, people did not come to the Roxy because um, they wanted to be at the Roxy and then see a show. We and I think no matter what we want to do, they're always going to come for the bands. But I, I I think if it's a collection of bands or at the Roxy, what we've tried to do is make it more of an experience. It's it's about um, the days before the interaction with the club. When you get there, the interaction with your staff. Um, that family feeling, that community feeling, and then having that social layer on top of it. It's, it's not just one thing. I think it's some type of recipe of um, being, being on all the different levels, but being aware of what's going on and sharing that as much as possible. Yeah. Who are the primary drivers around the new ticketing initiatives? The venues, the labels, the promoters, the bands, the managers? Who, who, who's driving that? I think as a, you a service provider. I mean, I'll push that over to you, but I think in, initially it's going to be either the promoter or the venue because they're the one that's responsible for giving the check at the end of the day to the artist. But I mean, yeah, I mean, it, you know, I think venues are probably the number one. They've got a physical location. They have to put on a certain number of shows just to pay the bills. Number two are promoters. And then third is artists, and artists are the rising ones. I mean, they're the ones that are doing it for the first time. And you've got, you know, Louis C.K. this year sold every single ticket on a tour, um, you know, nationwide. So we're starting to see the rise of that. But as of today, it's still venues and promoters. But I would just say it's it's AEG, Live Nation Ticketmaster on one side, and then kind of everybody else afterward. And then you're right, on the artist side, we're, we're, we're getting approached so much more by artists. You know, the question is, how much of an allotment of you know the fan club percentage or whatever they're going to get over time and that they can negotiate, but that's that's really the branded equity of the client themselves. And we're seeing artists come into the smaller venues, the 500-seat venues like the Roxy, um, saying that we want to do PayPal on this show, and they sell the show out in two days. So it's hard for us to... Um, 
you know, argue with that. Um, you know, I might get it, my hand slapped by my ticketing company. It doesn't happen all the time, but there are artists that want to come in, and that's because they've created that community. They've created that relationship with their fans that they know exactly what's going to happen because it's happened in every single city on the tour. So they're their fans feel like if they're dealing direct with the artists that there's more of an experience there for them and they would rather in their minds put that money right into the artist's pocket and not into the venue i see mostly liquor companies if anything you know tequila brands things like that who I, can I, get good advertising on it that's that's what's happening at, at the at, at venues like the roxy too they'll come in they'll buy the venue out and then they'll do a promotion but that that's that's here and there i mean on, on the every day is is the venue and the in the in the promoter working on it i think we could take one more question um anyone i feel like also there's a pushback from live nation and Ticketmaster with regards to f bands asking for those allotments because I've heard like a lot of things like, A, you either have to partner with the ticketing company that has a deal with Ticketmaster that'll show your little direct-to-fan ticketing options, or you have to put it behind a fan club now, and they won't let you get those allotments unless you could prove and say that you have to have a login and a password to get into buy these fan allotments, and that's what, that's what I'm running into with some of our artists. And unless we start those conversations, you know, months in advance, when sometimes we're not even confirming shows until, you know, one month before, mm -hmm. that's what we're running into. I mean, I'll just dive in real quickly. I mean, they have some pretty specific rules, and you're right. Um, if you're doing just artist pre-sale where you're just selling the ticket, it needs to be login and password protected and has to go on sale prior to the public on sale and come off before it. The other option is that you don't need a password for is if you do something with added value. Um, a signed piece of merchandise, a meet and greet, a special section, front of the line, those kind of things you can put on sale and, and sell without any login and password. And so we're starting to see artists, like we do you know, embeddable widgets for our artists and we'll link out to the primary ticketing company and all their dates and then their VIP dates through us and we'll let them link to both and let the fans choose and it's public. And actually Ticketmaster and Live Nation are pretty reasonable and, and fair about that stuff. They let that go. I mean, I don't know what happens behind the scenes with pressure, but we deal with a lot of their big touring artists and there's no problem. Rick, are you setting aside any tickets for any of your, your big name talent or you sell it all yourself? We, we used to. Actually, at the very beginning, um, you know, it was, it was really quite a uh, good thing for us because uh, you know the bands sort of almost would promote the festival more because they were making yeah. a little extra money on the ticketing. We, we'd like to see that happen again, but not really for a festival. And and now you're getting into some other complications about um, we're not selling a physical ticket. We're selling an RFID wristband that has yeah. to be mailed to people in advance, and a lot of communication has to happen in between us and the fan leading up to the event to prepare them so um it's it's probably cleanest that way but if there's a way to to get artists uh vested in promoting the festival through letting them make you know some money off the ticketing hallelujah i agree with that i think that's it any other questions out there thank you guys very much and uh, thank you for brian and his crew for putting this together and we'll see you next year